couple of chapters. And today the scripture we're going to uh, use comes from chapter 4. But first, um, in chapter 3, here's what happens. Uh, After the great fish spit Jonah out, he went to Nineveh with a very brief message. God told him to go preach. And he said, in 40 days you will be overturned. Just five words in Hebrew. And sure enough, the whole city from the king all the way down to the livestock um, repented and, and dressed in sackcloth. And, and, and so God relented and wasn't going to destroy Nineveh. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 4. To this, it seemed very wrong to Jonah. And he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said when I was still at home? Uh, that you are a God who is uh, compassionate and gracious, uh, slow to anger and abounding in love. And so I've tried to forestall this by fleeing to Tarshish. And you are God who relents of sending calamity. Now, just take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord replied to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry? After this, uh, the rest of the story is Jonah goes and builds a a sukkah, a tent like we had in the uh, atrium last year. And there's a hole in the top. And so the sun's beating down on his head. And so the Lord uh, grants uh, that a plant will grow up and give him shade. And we're told he's happy for the first time in the whole book of Jonah. And then the Lord sends a worm. And then the uh, plant withers and dies and the sun beats down on his head and he's angry i I get that and uh so uh god says to him you know you're angry about this plant that you didn't even grow and yet you're not angry and about uh and upset about the 120,000 people down there who don't know right from wrong that i made don't i have a right to care about them And that's the end of the story. We don't know what Jonah does. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Some years back, when we were in Africa, we were on a Kenyan Airlines flight uh, going from uh, one place in Africa to another. And on the the monitors that were uh, up and down uh, the aisle, uh, they showed adventures of Mr. Bean. Are you familiar with Mr. Bean? Uh, the British comedian, of course, Mr. Bean's comedy is that he gets everything wrong. Everything wrong. And, and it was funny to watch the whole plane erupt in laughter over the misadventures of Mr. Bean. And it didn't matter if we were American or European or African. That comedy cut across all the cultures and all the lines. And, and comedy has a wonderful way of cutting across uh, culture and also bringing people together. And, of course, that's one of the real tragedies about the loss of Robin Williams this week. And comedy is such a wonderful gift. And, and you probably know that what makes something a comedy is that even though one thing goes wrong after another, in the end it all turns out all right. I mean, in the end, Mr. Bean never dies. Inspector Clouseau solves the case. Chevy Chase and his family make it to Wally World. In the end of the comedy, it all works out all right. Another beautiful thing about comedy is this. In in comedy, we get a chance to to look at the comedian and we laugh, but we also see ourselves. We know, like, well, I've done some stuff like that. I've had a vacation almost like the Griswolds. I've been there. 
that's the beautiful thing about comedy. And one of the things I tried to share in the gym last week is I think that's the most appropriate way to look at Jonah. Is as a comedy, it's a story where everything goes wrong, but it still turns out all right. Jonah's supposed to go one way, he goes another, and what happens is all the, the people on board the ship, the sailors who believe in other gods, turn out to believe in the one true God, the God of Jonah. And then in the end, the city of Nineveh, where Jonah doesn't even want to go, 120,000 people are saved. Everything goes wrong, and it turns out all right. And of course, the hero, our star of this comedy, uh, is really God. But the, but the character that we look at for all the mishap is Jonah. Jonah is what we might call not just a prophet, but an anti-prophet. When you see a Jonah, you see that he does everything wrong. He's supposed to go to Nineveh. He goes to Tarshish. Everybody on board the ship prays to false gods, and he won't even pray to the one true God. He wants to get in Tarshish. He ends up swallowed by a big fish and spit out somewhere else. He's supposed to preach to Nineveh. He doesn't even try very hard. He does a five-word sermon in Hebrew, which is just basically, in 40 days, things are going to change. It's not even the word destruction in Hebrew. And everybody repents. And then he gets angry about it. And he builds a Sukkot. And we learned last year when we talked about Sukkot, when you build a tabernacle, it's because you're expecting the the salvation of everybody. And he doesn't want the salvation of everybody. And he builds one anyway. He shouldn't even be building it. Everything wrong. In fact, many people call him the anti-prophet. Just three quick comparisons this morning just to show you. There's a great prophet named Elijah that we talked about a few weeks ago. And Elijah sat under a tree just like Jonah and said, Oh, Lord, kill me, take my life. But the difference was Elijah said that because they were trying to kill him and it didn't seem to be working. Jonah says that because it is working. The people are actually repenting and he wants to die. Uh, he is the anti-Moses. A Moses who calls on God's name, um, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. When Moses says that, he's reminding God to, to be merciful to the people. Jonah uses that name and tells God, basically, I'm really mad. You need to knock off these people. And then he's the anti-Abraham. I don't know if you remember the story of that very wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God's getting ready to destroy them. And Abraham risks everything and argues with God to save Sodom and Gomorrah. Jonah argues with God to kill Nineveh. He's just got it all wrong. Now, what I want you to know this morning is Jonah's not stupid. Jonah actually, before this Nineveh episode, is a successful prophet. You can read the very brief three verses about him in 2 Kings 24. But we're told that he was a prophet under the time and reign of Jeroboam II in Israel, who's really a wicked king. But God uses Jonah and things turn out okay for the people of Israel. So he's had some success. He's not stupid. He's also not stupid. He knows that the Ninevites are really nasty people. The Assyrians are bad news. Let me put it in language we understand. When I say... Nineveh, you think ISIS. Nineveh, ISIS. That's what we're talking about. Mass slaughter and destruction that they record and they proudly talk about it. Uh, Sennacherib, a king who will come 50 years after Jonah, writes in, in, in his palace in a big bas-relief that takes a whole wall of one of the palaces. He said when they got one to one particular town outside Jerusalem, he said, proudly said, I gave them permission to slaughter. And they did. They slaughtered men. They slaughtered women. 
they especially looked for men, uh, for men um, uh, who were young to make sure they could destroy their life, to women who were pregnant so they make sure they could destroy their womb. I, I used to read what they did in Bible study, and they, people asked, don't read, don't read that anymore. These are the Assyrians. Jonah's smart. He knows they're bad news. So he's not stupid. He also is not stupid. He knows that if he preaches and prophesies destruction and destruction doesn't come, well, he doesn't look like much of a prophet. Oh, I thought you said they were going to be destroyed. Well, I did. So Jonah's not completely stupid, but he acts stupid. So here's what I want to put before us this morning. What would cause an otherwise reputable prophet to become stupid? To act stupid. And I don't know all of the reasons, but I want to tell you here this morning something that accentuates it is this. Jonah experiences and is driven by in this story this morning resentment and anger. And I am here to tell you that anger and resentment make us all stupid. Uh, one of the things that's in your bulletin is our faith walking retreat that will be at Dinah's house in October. And one of the mottos of faith walking is anxiety makes us stupid. When we're really anxious and really nervous, we do dumb things. We give into the lower side of our brain. And, and, and anger and resentment does the same thing. It just, think about a time resentment has really paid off for you. When's resentment really done something positive for you in your life? You can't think of one. Our colleague Chris Estes uh, put it this way. As only Chris can, he said, resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. And that's what you do to yourself. Uh, Frederick Buechner put it this way. He said, it's like a Thanksgiving feast. And we feed on it and feed on it and feed on it. Have you ever noticed how good anger and resentment feels for a while? I mean, you're a victim. They hurt you. They took advantage of you. This shouldn't have gone right. And you feed on it. And you get fired up on it. And after a while... As Beekner points out, when the meal is over, you look at the carcass on the table, and it's really you. Anger and resentment will eat you alive from the inside out. And it happens to Jonah. He's resentful. He wanted to go one way. God made him go another. He wanted one thing to happen to the Ninevites, and something else happened completely different. And, and, and so God confronts him about that and says, you know, is it right for you to be angry? I mean, is this a good idea? And the universal answer is, it's never a good idea to feed your resentment and anger. You know, years ago, psychologists used to talk about importance of catharsis. And now they, and, you know, and they'd give you a pillow to smash and that kind of thing. And now what they're finding out is people that go and beat on the pillow just feed their anger. And they, they just continue to build it and no one gets healthier. Resentment simply doesn't work. If you ever, you were upset and you skipped a party... This is what resentment's like. You're skipping the party. Everybody else is there having a good time, and they don't even know you're not there. That's resentment. Resentment and anger simply doesn't move you forward in your life, and it didn't move Jonah forward. In fact, the opposite had him. It made him, as a prophet, behave like an anti-prophet and do some pretty stupid things. Well, the good news is not everybody in this story is as stubborn as Jonah. Interestingly, the people of Nineveh don't resent it and become angry when they get a message that in 40 days things are going to change big time. You could have resented it. If you tell me my world is about to come undone in 40 days, I could get angry about that. I like my life the way it is. But they don't resent. What do they do? They repent. It means that they turn around. 
They change the And it's an amazing thing in the story. Everybody turns around in the story. From the king all the way down to the cattle. You heard me. The story says the cattle repented. They dressed the, sa- the cattle in sackcloth. Have you ever worn sackcloth? Have you ever been in a potato sack race and put on a potato sack? Okay, just wear a potato sack. No, no shirt and jeans or anything under it. That's a little bit like sackcloth. Now try to get that on your cattle. Have you ever been to the pooch parade? I'm pretty amazed at the pooch parade, how they dress dogs. But I haven't seen anybody dress their cattle. But that's how complete the repentance is. All the way from king, all the way down, they change. And what happens? They all live. And something positive happens. Resentment drains life. Repentance gives life and gives a new chance at life. And so let me ask you just one more question this morning. What do you think the difference is? Why do some people go on to just feed their resentment and other people go and turn around and recognize where they may be wrong and open themselves up to a new way of life? What's the difference? Well, one possibility that I see in the story is that they listen to God. And by listen, I mean like Shema listening. And we've talked about this before. Shema doesn't just mean hear it. Like in one ear and out the other. Shema means hear it, understand it, and do something about it. The king heard the message, 40 days, things could go really south. He heard it, understood it, decided to do something about it. Jonah heard a word from God, go to Nineveh and preach, and he didn't hear it. He first of all didn't do it, and then when he got there, he did it in a way assuming that this was for their destruction rather than it was for people's salvation. He didn't understand the message of God. It starts, I think, by listening to God. When we hear what God wants to say to us and we're open to that, things begin to change. But here's the catch. The king didn't hear this word directly from God. He actually heard it from Jonah, which means, as we've said before, sometimes to hear God, you may have to listen to another person. Sometimes God will put very good advice and correction in the mouth of someone else. Maybe somebody we don't even expect it to come from, like our spouse, our neighbor. I mean, the the classic story that the Jews celebrate in the book of Exodus is this, that Moses listens to his father-in-law, who is also a priest of probably a pagan god, give him advice about how to run Israel, how to run the people of God. And Moses listens, listens to his in-laws. And things go better. And that's a classic example of sometimes we have to listen to other people because they will bring God's advice to us. And that's exactly what happened. The king listens and everybody repents. Listening is a powerful thing. If you don't listen to other people, you often will miss God's message. But the other thing is by, sometimes by just listening to other people, you not only receive a blessing, you bless them. Um, And that's one of the beauties, I think, of Stephen ministry training is it really teaches you to listen well. I mean, listening makes such a difference. You're probably familiar with Viktor Frankl. Do you remember him? He was in a a Nazi concentration camp. He survived, went on to have an amazing career as a psychiatrist. And he talks about one night, 2 a.m. in the middle of the night, a woman called him. And she told him, Dr. Frankl, I'm going to kill myself. And so he started talking with her and started uh, listening to her. And they went back and forth and he gave her these reasons why she shouldn't do that. And after two hours, he hung up the phone, she hung up, and she wasn't going to do it. So he saw her the next day in the office and he said to her, he said, which one of all the reasons that I gave you made you decide not to take your life? And her answer was, none of them. 
She said, it was the fact that you were willing to listen to me for two hours at two in the morning. That gave me hope in humankind. Oftentimes by listening, we hear God's word and we are changed. Sometimes by the listening, we actually help change the other person. I know I've told you that story before of a guy, that, a dentist that went to a convention. And at the convention, he took a workshop on, you know, how to relate better with your patients. And, and so it taught him listening skills. And so he got on the airplane to head home uh, back to Texas, and he thought he'd try it. So the person next to him on the plane, um, he introduced himself, uh, and the other person introduced themselves, and the other person then, like, he listened, and that person talked nonstop for two and a half hours. And when it was over, honest to goodness, this is what he said the other person said to him. That person said to the dentist, you are the most interesting man I've ever met. (laughs) It's amazingly profound to open your heart and listen to God and listen to other people. And it may actually make the difference in the direction of your life and their life. I mean, I admit, I'm Caucasian. I live in Texas. I don't understand everything in Ferguson, Missouri, but this much I get. The police are not listening to the community. And the community appears are not listening to their own favorite son from the state police. And someone eventually has to put down their agenda and open their heart and see something differently. Somebody's got to be the first to repent and make a change. And the path then becomes completely different. If you don't believe me, let me give you one more case before I quit. Fifty years... Fifty years after Jonah's time, the Assyrians will march on Jerusalem. And they will destroy, as I mentioned, town after town. So they get to the gates of Jerusalem. And they're led by an arrogant king, Sennacherib. And Sennacherib is proud of his arrogance. And he doesn't listen to anybody, not to his advisors, not to the prophet Isaiah or the the king of Jerusalem. He doesn't listen to anybody. And he gets right to the gate, and I've told you the story before. You can find it in Isaiah, or um, uh, uh, you can find it in, in Chronicles, Second Chronicles. And he gets right to the gate in his arrogance, and he's going to destroy Jerusalem within days. And then one night, in the middle of the night, 185,000 of his soldiers just die in the night, just found dead. And he has to turn around. Go back home to Assyria, and within a few years, he's assassinated in his temple of the false god that he worships. In his arrogance, 185,000 people die, not counting his enemies, the Jews. Then there's this other king 50 years earlier who's not even named in Nineveh, who opens his mind and heart, and he listens to God And he listens to Jonah, and God tells Jonah that 120,000 people who don't know they're right from their wrong, or they're left from their right, are saved. Arrogance, refusing to listen, 185,000 die out of anger and resentment. Opening your heart, repenting and listening. 120,000 are saved. 195,000 dead. 120,000 saved. You do the math. 